Our scripture reading this morning will uh, come to us from 1 John chapter 2. This is on page 1021 of our Pew Bibles, 1 John chapter 2. I'll begin reading at verse 18. This is God's holy word. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Thus far, God's holy word for us today, and we see there uh, not only the, the conflict between the Christ and the Antichrist, and the importance of our confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, Uh, But it's in that context that John says not once, but twice, that we too are anointed. Now, in the Greek, that is the same word. This anointing that we have is the same christening, as it were, that Christ has. So we'll read now our um, catechism lesson um, responsively. Question 31 and 32. We are in the gratitude or in the deliverance section, the center section of the catechism, working our way through the Apostles' Creed. And so, of course, in our creed, we confess, uh, I believe, um, don't want to say the wrong thing, like I don't know the Apostles' Creed, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord. So last week, uh, Luke taught uh, what we mean when we say, I believe in Jesus. Why do we call Him Jesus? And this week, we look at the word Christ. Why is He called Christ, meaning anointed? Because he has been ordained by God the Father and has been anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher who fully reveals to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our deliverance. Our only high priest who has delivered us by the one sacrifice of his body and who continually intercedes for us before the Father. And our eternal King, who governs us by His Word and Spirit, and who guards us and keeps us in the deliverance He has won for us. But why are you called a Christian? 
Because by faith I am a member of Christ, and so I share in His anointing. I am anointed to confess His name, to present myself to Him as a living sacrifice of thanks, to strive with a free conscience against sin and the devil in this life, and afterward to reign with Christ over all creation for eternity. Our title this morning is The Christian's Threefold Office. And I do want to focus today on that second question, not because the first one is unimportant, but uh, sometimes it it gets a little bit of a light treatment because we we really have two topics together on this Lord's Day and they're connected. Uh, As I began uh, meditating on this catechism lesson, I happened to see this article in the newspaper on Friday about Charles III, uh, Charles III, the priest king. Um... I didn't follow the coronation uh, whatsoever. Uh, no particular spite for the monarchy, but no particular love either. But this, uh, this author points out that uh, one of the most important parts of the coronation happened out of public view. Behind a hand-woven screen in Westminster Abbey, the Archbishop of Canterbury took up the oldest item in the coronation regalia, which is a golden spoon. And he used this spoon to anoint the king's hands, chest, and head with holy oil. Uh, The article goes on uh, to talk about the fact that this uh, anointing affirmed Charles as a link in a symbolic chain between heaven and earth. And then it goes into uh, the Hebrew for uh, anointing. Mashiach gives us Messiah, and the Greek chrisma gives us Christos. And uh, refers a little bit to uh, Solomon in the Old Testament, uh, the prophets, uh, the, the Maccabeans, the Hasmonean family who briefly wedded the Judean kingship with the priesthood uh, before the coming of Christ. And there's an interesting detail about uh, the recipe. Um, the oils for Charles Chrism were grown in the groves of the monasteries of the Ascension this week and Mary Magdalene in Jerusalem's Mount of Olives. The formula was prepared by Greek Orthodox monks and blessed to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre by Theophilus III, Orthodox Patriarch of Jerusalem. So we have this this religious ceremony which resulted in the the creation, the christening of a priest king. And it's interesting that uh, this comes to us from the scriptures. It comes to us from this idea of anointing and christening. Uh, Last week... Luke talked about Jesus. Now it's the name that means salvation. It is given by the angel. And of course, we've perhaps all seen the billboards or the bumper stickers. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. And, um, you know, this is good sort of fundamentalist American Christianity. Brother, are you saved? Get saved. I've been saved. But the question that this often begs is, saved from what? Saved how? How and what are we saved from? And this second title that we use, Jesus the Christ, um, then reveals to us uh, that how Jesus saves. He saves in his uh, threefold office, as the Catechism teaches us, as prophet, uh, priest, and king. Christ, of course, is not Jesus' last name. It's not as though he was born to Mr. and Mrs. Christ. He is the Christ. And in Matthew chapter 16, one of the turning points of Matthew's gospel, in the great uh, confession of Peter, 
Jesus asks, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But who do you say that I am? Jesus asked. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And of course, Jesus says that flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you. And upon uh, this, uh, Peter, this rock, this confession, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But then, of course, he, he strictly charges the disciples to tell no one that he was the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah. Now, in the time of the New Testament, this title uh, would have been most associated with Christ as uh, the king. But there are three Old Testament offices that are marked out and identified by their anointing. And our uh, catechism tells us, as the New Testament tells us, that this anointing is, is not mechanistically through oil. It is symbolic. It is a type and shadow of the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And so briefly, before we turn to the second half of our catechism lesson, I want to just unpack for a moment this, this first description of who and what Christ is. Our chief prophet and teacher, who fully reveals to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our deliverance. In Acts chapter 3, when Peter is preaching, he says, Repent and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you. And he says, quoting uh, Moses from Deuteronomy 18, he says, The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. Jesus is the prophet prophesied by Moses. And he saves us, therefore, from our ignorance. He performs a revelatory function. As John 15 says, uh, Jesus speaking to the disciples in that farewell discourse, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Jesus is, like the prophets of old, uh, a part of the Father's divine counsel. The prophets were lifted up into that counsel. Jesus was, as it were, born into it, native to it. And then sent with a message. So he saves us from our ignorance. He saves us, as uh, the catechism also refers to, uh, from the devil, from the liar who deceives us. He saves us from error. It's the spirit of truth. That's one of the ways that Jesus the Christ saves. But he is also our only high priest who has delivered us by the one sacrifice of his body. And who continually intercedes for us before the Father. In Exodus, we read uh, that in great detail uh, the construction of the tabernacle. And that construction included the robes, the garments of the priests. And as the entire tabernacle is, is anointed and consecrated and made holy, the priests as well are uh, washed and purified and cleansed. And the book of Hebrews takes uh, preeminently in the New Testament this, this priestly language of the Old Testament and applies it not just once or twice, but consistently throughout to Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 2 says he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So the priestly character of Christ relates to his deity and his humanity. That he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. The death of Christ is the once and for all sacrifice that unites us, reconciles us to God. 
Chapter 3 says, Consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Again, by linking priest with apostle, it's speaking of that revelatory function, as it were, that uh, foundation laying, the messenger function. In Hebrews 4, uh, the author says again, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, and later on Hebrews will pick this up as passing behind the curtain into the Holy of Holies, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He was tempted as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus, in his priestly character, shares in our humanity, in our sufferings, in our sorrows. He is a priest who is a priest by appointment, not by blood. Christ did not exalt himself, but was appointed by him who said, You are my son. And in chapter 7, uh, this, is, uh, this appointing is tied to the oath that is sworn by the Father. Picking up the covenantal language of the Old Testament, it was not without an oath. Those who became priests formerly, speaking of the Levites, were made priests without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath from the one who said to him, quoting Psalm 110, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. He is an eternal priest. And Hebrews 9 will say that he is a priest of the good things to come. He is a priest of our future. And he's a priest who intercedes for us, ensuring those future blessings. And finally... The Catechism says he's our eternal king who governs us by his word and spirit and who guards us and keeps us in the deliverance he has won for us. Matthew 21, after the triumphal entry, uh, the scribes and the teachers of the law are saying, uh, what are you going to do about all these children? They're, They're applying Psalm 118. They're singing hosannas to you. They're calling you the Messiah. And Jesus says, this took place, or rather Matthew says, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Jesus is our king who comes humbly to us. And of course, we have the climactic scene in John's gospel, right? Where Pilate asks him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, do you say this of your own accord, or did someone else say this? Jesus finally answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered. But my kingdom is not from this world. So you are a king. You have said that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. So, uh, Jesus Christ is anointed. And through his holiness, through his obedience, through his anointing, is filled with the Holy Spirit. And as the Catechism teaches us this truth of the title Christ, that we might know how he saves us, by taking away our ignorance and our error, by taking away our sins and washing and purifying us, and by protecting us and guarding us and delivering us in his kingly office, the Catechism wants us to draw comfort from this, And to know that we share in his anointing. Because the spirit has been poured out on him, it has been poured out on us as well. And so it asks, but why are you called a Christian? Because by faith I am a member of Christ. And so I share in his anointing. I am anointed to confess his name. 
To present myself to him as a living sacrifice of thanks. To strive with a free conscience against sin and the devil in this life and afterward to reign with Christ over all creation for eternity. Again, the Catechism shows here its framing towards Christian comfort and assurance. As it teaches Christian uh, doctrine and the drama of the Christian faith, it, it connects it to our comfort. The medieval church had created a divide between the clergy, and as we just saw last Saturday in London, and, and the monarchy for that matter. Right, had created this divide between those who were anointed, those who had the holy orders of God. Holy orders was one of the five additional sacrifices added to baptism and the Lord's Supper. And it was a sacrament that was not available to all believers in Jesus Christ. It was exclusive in its character. It divided the church. And the Reformers rightly saw this as contrary to the blessing of Pentecost. That the Spirit is poured out upon all believers in the church. And we read there, uh, Peter quoting the prophet Joel, In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. I told Richard I wasn't going to talk about dreaming this Sunday. But there we go. It's from Joel. The old men will dream dreams. And this is also taught as we read this morning in 1 John 2. That we are anointed explicitly to share in his christening. 1 Peter chapter 2 speaks of how we are Stones, living stones in a holy temple, as does Paul in Ephesians. But in Peter, it's, it's very explicit. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, that's Christ, the cornerstone, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices accepted to God through Jesus Christ. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, king, priest, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim prophecy, proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Peter here emphasizes the proclamation as well as the royal and sacrificial role. All three offices are here in 1 Peter 2. And we have... Other analogies, not only with Ephesians, but with Romans 12, right? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is no longer an atoning, propitiatory sacrifice, not a guilt offering that takes away sins. That's once and for all. All our sins have been taken away. But this is a thanks offering. This is gratitude. And Paul presents this as the header over the whole of the Christian life and response to the gospel. We are transformed by the renewal of our hearts and minds. And brothers and sisters, this blessing that we have through Pentecost, through the New Covenant Church, is different than Old Testament saints. Jeremiah 31, 31 clearly prophesied of the coming New Covenant, that it would be different, that it would be, as Hebrews calls it, a better covenant. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, and I will write it on their hearts. They shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Our catechism uses the opportunity of the threefold office of Christ, the work of Christ, to take up this concept of the threefold office of the believer, 
Remember what the Catechism taught us, that we are called to confess, to strive against sin and the devil, and to reign, to sacrifice. Each of these three offices of Christ, which he exhibits in their paradigmatic or their their final, their chief role, are given to each and every believer in some degree. Now, gifts may vary. That's the whole point of the story. Uh, The metaphor of the church is the body of Christ, right? We have different roles and different positions. Members may have different roles, and yet no professing member, no one of us, can say that we don't confess the name of Christ, that we don't present ourselves in gratitude as living sacrifices, that we don't strive with a free conscience through the gospel against the sin and the flesh and the devil. All of us will reign with Christ over all creation. Jesus says in Matthew 25, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Second Timothy 2, If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. We all do reign and will reign with Christ. Now sometimes this... Uh, Idea, this biblical idea recovered by the Protestant Reformation can be abused, can be taken in isolation or in an unbalanced fashion in order to claim that there is no diversity whatsoever in the church among different stations or offices. But I think a, a very simple reading of the New Testament shows that this is not true. We see that ministers and ministries are given by Christ in Ephesians 4, for instance. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to maturity. That we wouldn't be tossed to and fro by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine or human cunning or craftiness and deceitful schemes. You see, even though we all receive the Spirit, even though, in one sense, you can say, we don't need to be taught because we can all read God's law and it's written on our hearts, we still need to be taught. We need to be encouraged. We need to be equipped. Paul tells Timothy about the appointment of overseers and elders, and we see deacons in the church. Our Belgic Confession makes it a confessional uh, matter. Um... We believe that this true church ought to be governed according to the spiritual order that the Lord has taught us in His Word. There should be ministers or pastors. There should be elders and deacons uh, to make up the council along with the pastors. And by this means, true religion is preserved. True doctrine is able to take its course. And evil men are corrected spiritually and held in check. We rightly in our churches, in churches of the Reformation, Presbyterian and Reformed churches, emphasize the importance of what we call special offices. Elders, deacons, and ministers. And the calling and ordination of these officers is unique. They're set aside for special service. These officers, as the many officers in this room know, are going to have to attend a bunch of extra meetings every month. They're going to have to do additional work. They're going to be in charge of leading and coordinating and supporting the rest of the body in its uh, threefold office. And many of of the handbooks uh, from the Reformation speaking about these officers talk about how ministers in their preaching capacity fulfill the role of prophets preeminently. And deacons in their uh, mercy ministry fulfill the role of priests and healing. 
And elders in the role of ruling and governing are the office of kings. And so we have these, as it were, uh, individual members of the body Christ, which are blessed and ordained in a special way, set apart to special service. But it's important to remember, and this is an error common, I think, in Reformed churches, that we would fall into the medieval habit of clericalism, of saying only the ordained people do the work in the church. And that's why Belgic or Heidelberg Catechism, question 32, is so important. There is a special office in the church, three special offices, but there is a general office that we all occupy. If you have been baptized, even the little children in our midst, moms and dads, Use this catechism to encourage your children. The general office of believer, which it is important for us to emphasize in terms of how we all participate in the work of building up the church of Christ. Different members may have different gifts. There is a diversity, as we have said. But we all confess the name of Christ. We've all done so in our profession of faith if we've come to communicant membership. We all confess the name of Christ in uh, reciting the creed each week, in singing prayers uh, out loud to one another in psalms and hymns. Perhaps you have a gift for evangelism and apologetics. You are a prophet as you share your faith with your friends. Perhaps you are gifted in the work of counseling and sharing the gospel and comforting other people in the church. Perhaps you're gifted in listening to sermons and learning the foundations of your faith, teaching them to your children. Moms and dads, you all are prophets to your kids. We're all called to present ourselves as a living sacrifice of thanksgiving. Paul extends that call to the entire church. That means loving and serving one another in the local church. Practicing hospitality. Exhibiting generosity with your time, with your talents, with your treasures. Our deacons, and I think this is a wonderful reminder as we reflect on the office of of diaconate, are instructed uh, to supervise the works of Christian mercy among the congregation. That suggests that everyone is are doing works of mercy and the deacons are supervisors. They are exhorting members of the congregation to show mercy. And likewise, brothers and sisters, we are all called to strive against sin and the devil in this life. And the foundation here is the gospel with a free conscience. We all know we're sinners saved by grace. And that enables us to to fight boldly. Because we're not fighting for our lives. Our lives have been given us to us by Christ. We're fighting with that new life we have in our hearts, joyously. That's why Paul can say, walk by the Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. That's our anointing. We have a new desire in our hearts. We do this by the power of the Holy Spirit in us, by Christ's christening, which he shares in our baptisms. Brothers and sisters, this um, catechism lesson comes to us by way of comfort this day, as gives us a charge and a calling in the church to service, to love, to proclamation. But it gives us a great comfort that Christ has completed all these works on our behalf, that this is how we have been saved by our true prophet, priest, and king. Let's pray. Merciful God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son that you sent to save us from our sins. And we thank you for the picture you gave us in the pages of the Old Testament of his work so manifold, so many different ways we needed saving. 
as he saved us from ignorance and error, from the liar, the serpent, as he saves us from our sins by forgiving it, washing us pure and clean. And he saves us from our wayward hearts, leading us and guiding us like a good shepherd through the wilderness, bringing us home to our heavenly rest. Merciful God, we pray that we might respond in joy to the blessings we've received from you, that we might go forth from here this day, this week, among your people and among the world and our neighbors as prophets, priests, and kings, to your glory, to your service, and to your return. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.